going to miss walking out to that music. This has been fun. Hello, Christ Community Church. It is good to be with all of you here in St. Charles and at Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb. It's good to be together as a church family. As you may have picked up from my voice, I have been fighting a cold all week. Um, and I'm just telling you that in case I need to clear my throat or I sip my tea or uh, you wonder why I slipped into a terrible impression of a 75-year-old chain smoker like I'm doing right now. Uh, that's what's going on. I don't know if my voice will hold, hold out, but I do have a plan to finish my sermon using mime and interpretive dance. So we're good. Um, it's going to be great. Today we are wrapping up our series called Heroes. And from the very first week of this series, uh, a lot of you have been coming up to me and saying, okay, which, which comic book heroes are you going to include? Who, who are you going to have in the lineup? And far and away, this kind of surprised me, the, the person that was asked about most is the one we actually saved till the very end, Iron Man. For those of you who are not familiar with Iron Man's backstory, let me fill you in. The man in the suit is Tony Stark, a self-described genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. Stark's suit equips him with super strength and supersonic flight and lasers and missiles and all sorts of other cool stuff. He's basically a, a, a fighter jet uh, that you can wear. But here's the thing. The, it's cool to watch Iron Man do all his tricks and his suit is cool and his powers are cool. But that's not really the reason people like Iron Man. People enjoy Iron Man movies because of Tony Stark and his larger-than-life personality. Stark is a natural-born leader. He's got charisma and charm. He's a quick wit, which means that he can usually best people not just in a fight, but also in a conversation. Uh, but that can, that can be pretty fun, but it also gets him into relationship trouble. He, he tends to figure things out faster than other people, but he's also impulsive. And so that uh, means that a lot of his most brilliant decisions have unforeseen consequences. In fact, he tends to accidentally create his own enemies through bad decisions. Because he is smarter, richer, and stronger than most other people, it means he tends to be kind of arrogant. And this mix of being a person with good intentions and brilliant and having an ego is part of what makes the character of Tony Stark so fun to watch in a movie. You wouldn't really want to be his friend. But that combination is also the source of most of his problems. And the same thing is true for our biblical hero today. Throughout this series, we have been looking at different biblical heroes and asking the question, what actually makes these people heroic? And for our hero today, we have picked one of the big ones, a man named Simon Peter. There are very few people in the Bible, or in history for that matter, who are more important than Peter. Peter was Jesus' best friend, his right-hand man. He was present for every major event in Jesus' ministry, all of the teaching, all of the miracles. And after Jesus was gone, Peter became the primary leader in the early Christian movement. He led the church in Jerusalem. He helped spread the, the good news of Jesus through the wider Roman Empire. He wrote a couple of books of the Bible. He is a big deal. But Peter's got a problem. And the story we're going to look at today, Peter's problem is this. He has regrets. He's got regrets. Peter is, like I said, a lot like Tony Stark, a natural leader, but also a bit impulsive it tends to get him into a lot of trouble. He's brilliant. He's insightful. He's almost always a step ahead of everybody around him. But he's also the person who's most likely to eat his words. One pastor said that Peter has a foot-shaped mouth. All of this came to a head the night that Jesus was arrested. Jesus had this final meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. It's the meal that we remember when we have communion like we're going to do today. 
At that meal, just hours before Jesus was taken to trial, he tries to explain to his disciples, you know, I'm going to be killed. This is how it's all going to go. But Peter doesn't get it. And and Jesus says to him, I'm going to go away. And I'm going someplace you can't follow me. And Peter said, wait, Lord, why, why, why can't I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you, he says. And Peter says to Jesus, I'll be the hero, I promise. I can, I can be the brave one. I can be bold and strong. I, I would die for you, Jesus. I really will. And Peter even looks around the table at all the other disciples with him, and he points at each one of them. Even if every single one of these guys, they fall away, they, they, might, they might disown you, Jesus, but never me, not me. I wonder how the other disciples felt about that, you know. Way to throw us under the bus, Peter. Make, way to make yourself look good at our expense. They all quickly chimed in. Oh, no, I would never fall away. I would never fall away, Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter. He says, really, Peter? Will you really lay down your life for me? He says, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, before the morning comes, you will disown me three times. Jesus tells Peter, no, Peter, you're not going to be the hero. And it turned out to be true. Peter wasn't the hero. When Jesus was arrested, all the disciples scatter, and Peter, probably still thinking about his boasts at dinner, decides he's going to follow Jesus, but just only kind of at a safe distance. He and another disciple, John, end up sneaking into the high priest's house where Jesus is on trial. And when they first arrive, the, the girl who lets Peter in asks him, hey, wait, aren't you one of this man's disciples? And Peter says, oh, no, 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 that, can, that can't be me. I, I don't even know this guy. It's a, a cold night early spring. So the people there at the house are gathered in the courtyard and they're standing around a charcoal fire, warming themselves. And Peter kind of gets his way into the group to warm up. He's just a a few yards away from a room where he can actually see Jesus on trial. They're interrogating him and they're using more than words, starting to get physical. Peter can see what's happening to his best friend. Uh, One of the other people around the fire, they, they see Peter, they say, wait, wait, aren't you one of his disciples? Your accent, it's, it's from Galilee, just like Jesus's. Peter says, no, no, never. I, ugh, I'm not one of them. No, I'm not one of his followers. Another hour goes by. Another man standing around the fire recognizes Peter's face and says, hey, you look familiar. Weren't, weren't you in the, the garden when we arrested him? Peter swears. He swears an oath. He says, I mean it. I'm not with him. I don't know him. Get off my back. And in that moment, Jesus in the other room looks at Peter, makes eye contact with him, and the rooster crows. You have a moment like that in your life? Maybe not quite as dramatic as this one, but maybe you know the feeling when you realize you've failed, when you've done something you swore that you would never do. You've crossed a line you thought you could never cross. Maybe it was a a gradual thing, you know? You look back over the years and you wonder, how did I get here? Maybe it was something like Peter. You swore that you'd be loyal to a friend, but then you let him down. Maybe you said, you always swore, I'm going to be an active, engaged parent, maybe different from your parents, but now your, your kids are getting older and you're still working 70 hours a week and the time that they do get with you is usually your worst. And you don't like who you're becoming, but you're not really sure how to change it. Maybe there's a time or multiple times when you've been passive about something, you know, something you should have spoken up about, something you should have defended, but you just sort of let whatever happen happen. Or maybe it's an addictive habit or something that you've got. And you keep swearing every time, I'm not going to do it again, I'm not going to do it again. But you did it again. 
You feel so powerless. I, I don't know what it is for you. What are, what are those moments that haunt you when you're feeling low, that, that nag at you and say, you are, you are a failure. You, you are a fraud. You are fake. If people only knew. So here's Peter. He's failed Jesus. He swore he would be the hero, but in the moment he choked. And it turns out he's all talk, no follow through. And this is his last interaction with Jesus before he dies. And all Peter's left with are regrets. Peter's taken, or Jesus is taken, and he's killed. Peter goes into hiding with the rest of the disciples. And a few days pass. It's early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, one of the women in their group, comes by with a rumor. She says, I've been to the tomb, and it's, the body's gone. I don't know where it is. Peter, again, always the, the one for action, is impulsive. He runs out, goes straight to the tomb, and he sees it. There's nothing here, nothing but grave clothes. He doesn't know exactly what it means, but he knows something is up. That evening, Jesus appears to a group of his disciples, and Peter's there, and they realize it's actually true. Jesus has risen from the dead. It actually happened. Jesus is back. He is who he said he is. And that means everything has changed. Everything is different now. But not everything. At least one thing hasn't changed, and that's Peter's failure. I mean, if Jesus had stayed dead, you know, if he'd stayed in the tomb, at the very least, Peter would have looked like he was prudent, you know? He had no reason to stay on a sinking ship. But now Jesus is alive. Within the first week, Jesus appears to his disciples a number of times. Jesus doesn't indicate to Peter that he's singling him out. He doesn't do anything to suggest that he's holding Peter's denial against him. But it's sort of the elephant in the room, you know? And here's where we come to our scene for today. It's in John chapter 21. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, the book of John is one of the, the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. If you turn about three quarters of the way in your Bible, you'll find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. The next book is John. If you get the Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. Here, right at the end of the book, chapter 21, is where Peter becomes a biblical hero. Let me just sum up the first chapter here rather than, than try to read and explain it all. What happens is this. Peter and a number of, it, of the disciples, they decide that they're going to go fishing. Not like, you know, rod and reel kind of fishing, but the, the sort of commercial fishing that they used to do in their old jobs before they started following Jesus. You know, where a crew of guys go out with big nets on a couple of boats in the middle of a large lake. And they're, they're fishing out at night, you know, mostly probably from nervous energy. They don't know what to do. It's a new situation, so they just do what they know. They go fishing. They, they work all night, catch nothing. But then as they're, they're coming in in the morning, there's a guy on the shore, and he calls out to him. He says, hey, you didn't catch anything? Why, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Which is just a weird suggestion from some dude on the shore. But they try it. And look what happens. They, they haul in so many fish that the, the, the net is almost bursting. they gotta, they got to drag it in. And in that moment, they realize, hey, we know who this guy is. It's Jesus out there on the shore. And this, so they go back to, to, to meet him. When they get there, they see that Jesus has already built a charcoal fire. And he's cooking some fish. It's a detail that I love about the story. I mean, Jesus has recently conquered death, you know, overcome the grave, defeated evil. And what does he do with his spare time? He goes fishing and has a barbecue. They eat breakfast together. After the meal, Jesus finally directly addresses Peter and his regrets. And here is where Jesus transforms him into a hero. Let's read in verse 15. 
When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you, you know all things. You, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Here's the first thing Jesus does to turn Peter into a hero. He revisits Peter's failure. He revisits Peter's failure. Notice how Jesus recreates the key details from Peter's boasting and his denial. Once again, Peter is sitting around a charcoal fire with a group of people, and he's being asked about his loyalty to Jesus. The other disciples are there, and Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You remember Peter's initial boasting. He's sitting there at the Last Supper, and he's saying, even, even if all these people fall away, I'll never fall away. I'll stay true. He was so bold in proclaiming his love and his loyalty to Jesus that he would put down all these other people. And now Jesus is saying, are you... Are you going to be so confident now? Do you still want to make the boast that you love me more than anybody else does? And this may not be obvious at first reading, but Peter's answers here in the text are, are humbled. They're not proud. He's not declaring to the world all the feats that he would do, to uh, uh, things he would accomplish for his love for Jesus. He simply says, Lord, you, you, you know the truth about me. I, I can't brag or boast. I I can't really fool you. No, nothing I would say would, would trick you, you know. And, and you know that I do love you. I, I know in spite of what happened. Jesus asked him it three times. Peter had denied him three times. So Jesus comes back and does it again and again, reliving, recapitulating Peter's denial. And Peter knows Jesus is doing it on purpose. Verse 17, it says that he was hurt by the fact that he asked him three times. He was, he was grieved by it. He had this deep sorrow for what he had done. And Jesus' probing questions were painful. Why, why go through all of this, you know? Why, why make Peter relive these moments? Why do something that exposes him to more shame like that? Can we just move on? You know, why, why do you got to make him feel worse about himself? For many of us, there are areas in our lives where we feel a lot of regret. And one of the main coping strategies for us is just to avoid the topic we don't mention it. We hide it. You can see it in a lot of our relationships. I know I lost my temper in public. Again, I, I, I realize that you and the kids were embarrassed, but it, I mean, I was embarrassed too. We don't, we don't have to really talk about this. I know, I know that you saw my internet browsing history that I didn't clear. I, 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 but look, I'm ashamed of it too. We don't, we don't really need to talk about it. Do we have to talk about it? Okay, I, look, isn't it enough that I did the dishes and I brought you flowers? I mean, do we really have to rehash the argument from last night? Can we just move on? 
facing things that we've done that we're ashamed of is really uncomfortable. And so we just try not to deal with it. Or maybe we try to deal with it by not dealing with it. And this is one of the hard things for people when they first come to faith, you know. The, the promise of following Jesus sounds like you're going to experience forgiveness and transformation. You're going to get joy and confidence before God. And, and, but pretty quickly, after you've surrendered your life to God, God starts rooting around. And all these parts of your life that just make you uncomfortable. You know, you got to revisit some things you thought were in the past. And God's poking at stuff and it hurts. He's kind of reopening wounds. I heard a psychologist named Henry Cloud explain it this way. He said, you know, if a guy came up to you in a dark parking lot and he was wearing a mask and he took out a knife and he stabbed you in the stomach and he took all your money and left you unconscious, you'd say, that's a criminal. I just got mugged. But if you went into a hospital and a guy with a mask came in and he took out a knife and he cut open your stomach and he took all of your money and left you in an unconscious state, you'd say, this is a doctor. Thanks for saving my life, doc. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's doing surgery on Peter, not mugging him. And God does that with us sometimes. He's got to deal with the parts of our lives that are vulnerable. And it's, it's hard. It may hurt. It, but God's not doing it to make things worse. He's, he's not trying to shame us or scar us more. He's doing it because it's really the only way to heal us. I mean, the healing process starts when we start being honest with ourselves about the truth of, of what's going on inside in Peter's case, his problem was that he was so overconfident in his boasting. He assumed he really could be the hero. He assumed that he would be loyal and brave to the end, but he totally overestimated himself. And in order to heal people, Peter of his pride, Peter just got to see the reality of himself. But the point here isn't just to humble Peter. It's actually to heal him of his shame. In areas where we've got a lot of regrets, we've got these strong feelings of shame, and shame always makes us want to hide. Shame is the belief that if someone really knew us, if they really saw what we were like, then that person would reject us. As I'm sure you have picked up over the course of this series, I love superheroes. Uh, and I, I love thinking about superheroes. Sometimes when I'm daydreaming, just sort of mind-wandering, one of the things that I do is I will actually make up my own superheroes, just true geek confessions here, okay? Um, but a lot of the times, the heroes that I make up, their superpowers are really kind of more mundane powers, the sort of thing that would help not so much from saving the world, but in solving day-to-day -day problems. So here, here's some examples of, of uh, superheroes that I made up. Imagine this, if you had the superpower to be able to travel back in time but you could only use it to go back to conversations once you had thought of a witty reply. Wouldn't that be great? You, you could call yourself Captain Comeback or The Zinger, you know? What about this? What if you had the ability to always know when a picture was being taken around you? You know, just a few seconds before someone snaps a photo, either your spidey senses go off and you can avoid having kind of a stupid look in someone's Facebook post. Or if you decided to use your powers for evil, you could become the villain photobomb. It would be awesome. Or what about this? What if you had the ability to always find the perfect song for the moment? You're driving in the car, just a flick of the dial and bam, cruising music. You're in the gym, just a flick of the wrist, bam, workout mix. Or you're having a meal with that special someone. Bam, love songs. Oh, yeah. Your, your superhero name would be Soundtrack, the master of mood music. Be really useful, I think. My favorite superhero, though, that I have come up with is this guy. He's got the ability to read minds. Now, in my opinion, uh, what makes a superhero interesting is 
their weaknesses. And so as a trade-off for this guy, not only could he read minds, but he always has to tell the truth. What I mean by that is if someone asked him a direct question, he would have to answer directly and honestly. What that means is that he would know everybody else's secrets, but everyone would know his secrets too. I haven't really come up with a good name for him yet, maybe just something dumb like Authenticity Man or Captain Genuine or something. I don't know. But what would it be like to know those things, to know everyone's inner thoughts, their their motivations, their feelings? What, What would it be like to be a wide open book to everyone that you met? No one would be able to hide anything from you, but you wouldn't be able to hide anything from them either. Why, why is that such an intriguing and terrifying idea at the same time? I mean, the idea of being completely open with other people has, uh, let's be honest, a certain appeal to it, you know? Like being really known, not having to hide. And yet it also feels really threatening at the same time. Uh, a pastor named Tim Keller says that one of the deep lies pretty much every person believes at some level is that we cannot be known and loved at the same time. If someone loves us, it it means that they don't really know the truth about us. And if they found out the truth about us, they would no longer love us. And that always leaves us insecure because none of the love that we feel, it feels very, very, very safe because there's always the chance that someone's gonna discover something about you that's gonna make them stop loving you. And so it's never the kind of love that can really deeply satisfy the cravings of your heart. All of us at some level, maybe not explicitly, but, but deep down in our bones, we've got that fear that if people really knew about us, we would not be lovable. If you want to overcome that fear, you cannot do it by simply avoiding the parts of your life that you're ashamed of. Your regrets have got to be brought out into the light and seen. You've got to experience being fully known by someone and yet still loved by them. And that, that is why Jesus is revisiting Peter's failure. He has to, because otherwise, Peter would still be carrying around that baggage forever. There would be a nagging doubt, no matter what, that Jesus was still holding something against him if he didn't go there. And so instead of leaving him in that state, Jesus says, let's go there. Let's look at it directly and see the source of your shame and regret. Let me look at it. And when Jesus sees it and brings it out into the open, how does he react? He forgives Peter. He continues to love him. I don't know if you remember a quote that I shared back at the start of this series. It was in the sermon on Jacob. It's from a, a pastor named Jack Miller, and he summed up the Christian message by saying this. He said, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could have ever imagined. You see, that's what Peter is experiencing here. He's seen the truth about himself now. He knows that he is far worse off than he ever thought. But now Jesus is trying to show him the flip side of it. He's trying to show him that he still loves Peter more than he could ever imagine. Even the worst thing that Peter could have done. I mean, one of the worst things you could ever do. Jesus is standing there getting killed and you say, I don't know him. I don't want him. It's about as bad as it gets. He's done it. And Jesus still loves him. The same is true for you and me. No matter how, no matter what we've done, Jesus still loves us. In fact, Peter isn't just loved and forgiven. But the second thing that Jesus does for him is he renews Peter's responsibility. He renews his responsibility. 
Notice how Jesus actually invites Peter back into leadership. He, each time that Peter says, yes, yes, I love you, Jesus, Jesus responds in some form like this, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. Jesus, back in chapter 10 of the book of John, calls himself the good shepherd. That's an image that's common for Jesus. He cares for his sheep. He protects his sheep. The people that he loves, he takes care of. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I want you not just to do something for me, but I want you to join me in my own very important ministry. I'm supposed to take care of the sheep. That's my job, my role. I want you to do it with me. When someone fails at something, one of the things I often wonder is, will I ever be trusted with anything important ever again? You know, even if I'm forgiven, will I always be seen as broken, as useless, as second class? A lot of people feel that way in church communities, as if their, their past failure has permanently disqualified them from being used by God. They're, they're allowed to hang out, but they, they aren't allowed to expect much of what God's going to do with them. But here's Jesus. He's taking the disciple who failed the worst and inviting him to be the top leader in the community. It's like if you crash someone's car and they not only said, oh, don't worry, you won't have to pay for the damages, but then they handed you to the keys to their new car and said, why don't you take it out for a spin? It's actually a really important part of the healing process from regret and shame. You've got to experience being trusted with responsibility again so that you can experience the fact that God doesn't see you as permanently damaged goods because of what you've done. What's really cool here is that Jesus isn't only forgiving Peter's past, overlooking what he's done. He's also transforming the very thing that Peter failed at and turning it into something that will enhance his future ministry. Let me explain what I mean by this. You see... Now that Peter has experienced failure, Peter is is no longer quite as boastful, self-assured, and arrogant as he was before. He's much more humble and self-aware. Before, Peter always wanted to be the hero. He was overconfident. He assumed that he was better than everybody else. He was the sort of person who would make a great short-term leader for a group. But in the long run, he would end up crushing the people that he was leading. That kind of leader tends to be arrogant and demanding. They impose unrealistic expectations on other people. They lack grace. But when someone has been humbled, they're much more likely to be tender and patient and caring with the people that they lead. Maybe you've heard what Jesus said about how you're supposed to deal with the sin in other people's lives. There's a famous saying where he says, you know, if you, if you see a speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye, You should make sure you get the big plank of wood out of your own eye first. And there's a good reason for that because, you know, if you don't get the log out of your eye, you're not going to be able to see very well to to get the speck out of the other person's eye. But the other reason that it's important to get the log out of your eye is actually one that our, our speaker from last week, Jerry Root, he pointed out to me one time. He said, you know, if you've had eye surgery done on you, if you've, if you've had that big piece of wood taken out of your eye, you know something, it hurts. It's painful. You've got that tender sting in your own eye. And so when you approach doing eye surgery on another person, you're going to do it with tenderness and care, knowing exactly what they're going through. A humble person, someone who knows both failure and grace, is exactly the sort of person you want to lead. It's the sort of person that you really want to care for the sheep. And so that's what Jesus does. He renews Peter's responsibility. 
The final thing, though, that Jesus does is this. He reveals Peter's end. He reveals his end. Look again at verse 18 and 19. After the third time, when Jesus asks, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He doesn't just say, feed my sheep. He makes a prediction about the end of Peter's life. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus is describing the way that Peter is gonna die. Peter is going to be crucified just like Jesus was. His hands are gonna be stretched out. He's going to be bound. He's gonna be led away to die. Uh, The later church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't want to go the same way his Lord did, so he has to be crucified upside down. We don't know if those details are true, but we do know that Peter was killed for his faith. He did end up following Jesus to the very end. It's interesting that Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die in the same way that he did because that very thought is the thing that made Peter so afraid. That's what made him chicken out in the first place. You know, he saw what was going on with Jesus in the other room and he knew where that was headed and he didn't want to go with him to the cross. He didn't want to die with him. So Peter lied to save his own skin, to avoid this very fate. And now Jesus is saying, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. How can that be? How can Peter be transformed from a person who's so afraid of dying that he would deny Jesus to someone who is so committed to Jesus that he would be willing to die? I think the difference is where we are in the story. Uh, just a week before this, Jesus, Peter thought that Jesus was dead. No, he didn't just think he was dead. He knew he was dead. He saw what happened to Jesus, and he knew no one survived that. But now a week later, Peter has seen the empty tomb. He has talked with Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He's touched him. He shared a meal with him. And that completely changes Peter's relationship with death. Because now that he's seen that Jesus has already conquered death itself, everything is different. It is different when the one who's inviting you to come and die is Jesus, the risen king. Because he's already gone ahead and he's scouted out the way. He's already walked the path and he's vanquished the threat. Jesus has overcome the very thing that made Peter afraid. Before, Peter used to say, I would die for you, Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, yes, you will but only now that I have died for you. Peter always wanted to be the hero, the brave one, the strong one, but he choked. He could never be that hero. He he could never die the noble death, make the ultimate sacrifice. He couldn't be the hero because that was someone else's job. And here's where we come to the final point in the message. And not just the final point in this message, but really the sum up for our series as a whole. There is only one hero in the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible. I know we called this series Heroes, but I'm hoping that by now you've realized that none of the people that we've talked about, none of the characters anywhere in the Bible actually, are the hero of their own story. God is the hero of every story. God is the one who saves the day. God is the one who rescues. There are only three kinds of characters in the Bible. Villains, sidekicks, and Jesus. That's it. 
And all the people we've been talking about at best are sidekicks. All of them start off as villains. All of us, not just the Bible characters, but you and me, we start off as bad guys. We, we all start off fighting for the wrong side. We all contribute to the problem that is destroying our world. There's only one good guy in the story, and that's Jesus. He is the only hero. He is the one who conquers sin, not us. He is the one who overcomes death, not us. He is the one who defeats evil, not us. You and I, we can't save the world. We cannot save the people around us. We can't even save ourselves. Everything heroic that we do is really just piggybacking off of what Jesus has already done. Peter can go feed Jesus his sheep because Jesus is the good shepherd who's already laid down his life for the sheep. Peter can lay down his life in following Jesus because Jesus has already conquered death for Peter. The way we get to be heroes is by first letting Jesus be our hero, the one who rescues us. And then after that, we can be sidekicks by joining Jesus in what he's already doing. We cannot be heroes on our own. One of the verses that we've come back to a few times here in this series is one that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is God's power that is made perfect. Not when we're strong, not when we've got it all together, but in our weakness. When we are totally overwhelmed, when we do not have anything to offer anymore. That is when the grace of God shows up. What about you? Have you ever been open about your weaknesses? I mean, your real weaknesses with another person. I mean, have you, you found another follower of Jesus and been honest with them about your failures and your regrets and your struggles? Have you ever told someone about what's really going on in your life? Maybe you have, but maybe it's been a while. I wanna encourage each of you to do that because that's where God's power is gonna show up in your life. When you go there, well, what would it be like if we all had space in our life to do that? I want us to be a church full of heroes, little H heroes, you know? And if we want to be that kind of church, the kind of church that experiences God's power in our lives and in our community, if we want to be a people who make a difference in the world around us, if we want to be people who see God move, then we have got to be honest about our weaknesses, our problems. We cannot be like Peter at the start of the story saying, oh, so confident, I will follow, I have what it takes, I can do it. We got to be people who are open about our sin. We gotta be a community where it is safe to share our regrets and our failures and our shame. Where people can do that and still experience love. What would that be like? What would it be like if when people walked in here, they encountered people with no pretense, people who didn't act like they were better than other people, who seemed genuinely humble, not hiding the mess of their lives? That would be a powerful thing. May we always be a community of people who say, I am not the hero, but let me tell you about the true hero, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, 
You are the hero. You're the one who did it all. You're the one who faced our sin and forgave it. You're the one who took our suffering and bore it. You are the one who went straight into death, came through and burst out on the other side, the victor. You're the one with all of the powers. You're the one with all of the glory. That's the reason you're the king. And that's the reason we look to you as our savior. God, humble us in a good way, in the way that leads us to the joy of being known and still loved by you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.